Good evening again. I'm Charles Garland, minister here. I know um, some of you are new, and uh, you picked a doozy of a week to come new. This is going to be like a like a really uncomfortably political sermon, and I'm just going to give you some of my punditry and reflections on the elections of last week. I'm not going to do that, but it's uncomfortably political, and it's talking about our pride. So, like, if you're hoping for like. I want to go to church and just get that warm feeling of being close to God and things. This may not, that may not happen today. <laughs> so um, that's just a precursor, just so you know. I, mean, that, I don't like it any better than you do. <laughs> so just know that as we go. But the upshot of what we're going to talk about today is that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. And especially we're going to talk about this in its political expression because uh, we're dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. That's uh, the text we're going to be looking at, if you want to look that up. Uh, But all through the Bible, uh, you see, when we get together in public life, uh, it's very common for us to sort of over-aggrandize ourselves and usurp God's place. Ever since the Tower of Babel, when people got together and thought if we uh, bind together, we won't need God and we can be like Him. And then you see the travails of the pharaohs in Egypt and how oppressive they were. And uh, you, During the exile that we're looking at with Daniel and his friends in Babylon, Babylon becomes the emblem of empires raised up in human pride against uh, the reign of God and saying we can uh, be our own God, thank you very much. Uh, goes on empires after that too. The Roman Empire in the New Testament was called Babylon too because it's sort of the emblem of overweening pride in empire and emperors. They tend to usurp God's place, right? And, you know, it seems very tempting to take on titles uh, and say things like, I am the master of the universe, or I am the sun king, or even to say, uh, I and my country are the last best hope for the earth. You know, this sort of pride just seems to come naturally when the subject of empire arises, and it seems to come to leaders, and it's a problem because God opposes the proud. And he opposes us when we are proud. So much so that when God uh, sent his son to rescue the world, he sent him as a king to overthrow the other kings and set the world back to rights. But like Jesus' mission is described as an invasion, basically to go and, and to, as Mary's song said, you remember the Magnificat? To cast down kings from their thrones and lift up the meek and the lowly is what Jesus came to do. And so we're going to look at the example of Nebuchadnezzar who got humbled from his pride. He's a pretty good example of, uh, the, of a proud emperor. Uh, but look at God's mercy to him, but also the warning to us as we think about um, our life, especially our public life, and our pride. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we um, know that pride is a massive problem for us individually and collectively. Uh, And when we see what it takes to humble somebody, we're afraid to pray about it. But um, we want to be humble before you and we want to think the way you do and have your eyes on uh, our lives and our lives together. So uh, come and gently do your work with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So pick up in Daniel 4. Verse 28 at the end of the chapter. All this, that is the dream and its interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar had had, which will come out as we read, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, 
And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time, months or seasons, it's unclear, shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. You know how much you know about Louis the Fourteenth, but he was a Nebuchadnezzar kind of a guy. Yeah, uh, loved him some Louis the Fourteenth. Apparently, you know, lived in Versailles, which might do it to you. But he reigned for seventy-two years. Reigned for seventy-two years in a time when it was pretty hard to live for seventy-two years. And uh, when he died, he had planned his own funeral. And as you might imagine, uh, he wanted it to be nice for him. A gold-plated casket that was to sit in the middle of the Notre Dame Cathedral as he lay in state. All the other candles in the cathedral to be extinguished except one on top of his gold casket that would cause it to glitter and represent the shining glitter of his great, brilliant life and reign. He wanted every eye to be on him and everything to be about him. And those were the instructions that he left for his funeral. The bishop that got the funeral, lucky bishop, was Jean-Baptiste Massion. And right before he walked up to the pulpit to preach the sermon, he went over and snuffed out the candle. And then he walked up to the pulpit and he said, God alone is great. God alone is great. And I like to think dropped the mic at that point. <laughs> nice going, right? Yeah. But Louis XIV and Nebuchadnezzar are really not very uncommon uh, when it comes to people like us gaining power uh, and being parts of empires. There are pretensions that come along with power, the adulation of people, uh, you know, massive economies, massive militaries, massive influence in the world. It just 
uh, doesn't have a good effect on most of us, uh, certainly not on Nebuchadnezzar. You start crediting yourself with things that you've been given. Uh, I heard one minister call this like cosmic plagiarism, you know, where you take credit for something that you didn't do. And um, Nebuchadnezzar was taking a lot of credit for Babylon, which was an impressive place, an amazing empire, militarily, economically, even aesthetically, culturally. But he was not giving credit to God. He was usurping God's credit, and God held it against him. You can see the way he talks on the palace. I like in verse 30, it says, the king answered like himself. <laughs> he answered, he says, is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty powers or royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And you see, you know, he's full of himself, and he's given all credit to himself. And has become arrogant. And he's forgotten who the true king really is. Which is a very common thing for us to forget. It's a little bit anachronistic to say it, but I'll explain as I go. Uh, Jesus Christ is the true king of the world. Jesus is the true king of the world. And Nebuchadnezzar came to know this uh, very painfully, very slowly, uh, violently. I wouldn't wish what happened to him on any of you or myself. But it's how he came to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the true king of the world. So, things he says when he comes to his senses, kind of lay it out for you. Again, verse 34, he says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And you can tell he's talking like in contrast to his own. He has an everlasting king and I, kingdom. I don't. Right? Mine is temporary. It can be taken away like that. He's, his kingdom is a real kingdom that can't be stopped. And then in verse 35, he has real sovereign power over the world. Uh, the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will, both among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. He has power that an insecure king can only dream about, right? It's contrasting. And then at the end of verse 37, he says, all of his ways are just and right. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar had been accused of uh, being an oppressor in the way that he uh, handled his reign. And he's saying the true king is an oppressor. The true king is just in what he does and is right in what he does. And so he's acknowledging that uh, God is a better king than he is and God is the rightful king and he isn't. Right? Which is a lot for him to admit. That's why when God comes to fix the world in his son Jesus Christ, he comes as a king. I don't know if you're familiar with the second psalm that Stephanie read for us, but you know it says the kings of the earth all of them, rage against God and against His anointed, which is the word for His Christ. Right? And they throw off His yoke and say, I don't want to be bridled by or bound by devotion to God. I want to be my own God. I'll do what I want. And it says God holds them in derision and laughs at, them, at their pretentiousness. And He says, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, and I'm going to give him all the nations as his possession, and he will rule with a rod of iron. And you kings of the earth, uh, kiss him lest he be angry. It's a very uh, threatening psalm to people who live with the pretense of empire or a pretense of being an emperor. Uh, it's scary. Not as nice as you want the Bible to be when you read the Bible, you know. But he's saying, be warned about this, you kings of the earth. Uh, in Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes about what Jesus came to do. And it says that he disarmed the rulers and put them to open shame. Disarmed the rulers and put them to open shame. 
when he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, it says that it's his coronation, that he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. That is the bridge of the world, like the bridge of a ship, that it's the place of authority and power, that he is ensconced as the king of the world and rules the world now. When he told his disciples what their mission was going to be in the world, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of the nations. So he is the true king. At the end of uh, Revelation, you see a couple of things. Uh, the culmination, when Jesus is finished fixing the world, uh, the big celebration at the end of Revelation, before the happy wedding feast, is the celebration of the fall of Babylon. Right? It's a, it's a uh, bold, sort of scary set of hymns being thrilled at what God has done to bring Babylon down. Its economic might, its military prowess, its pretentious pride has been brought low and Jesus the King has been revealed as the true King. It says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Handel probably has that in your head somewhere if you've been listening. But the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Jesus is the rightful King of the world. Not just in some uh, airy spiritual sense, but in every real sense that we know. He is the King of the world. It just doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like he's in control of the world. It seems like things would go differently if he were. And it's hard to believe, and it's easy to forget, and it's common just to think as if it's not really true. Because empire, and we live in one of the greatest empires ever, right, is impressive. Economically, it's impressive. Militarily, it's impressive. Culturally, uh, politically, it's, it's deeply impressive. Real power, the real world, and how things really work on the ground we know has to do with the Pax Americana, right? And the peace that the world knows because of the American Empire. And that's tangible. And to say that Jesus is the king of the world is very intangible. And it just sounds like you're describing some sort of a privately held religious belief rather than saying something that's true about the world. And so I want us to think a little bit, though, about what happens when we forget this. When we forget that Jesus Christ is the true king of the world. Um... The Bible calls this generally uh, the problem of trusting in princes. Uh, trusting in princes, like trusting in political leaders. But it comes out in a, a few specific ways I'll mention. I'm sure there are more. But one is, um, when we forget that Jesus is the true king of the world, we spiritualize our faith too much. And we say that Jesus is the king of the world, not like really con in control of what happens in the world, not like really control of the control of the economy and international relations and things like that you know interest rates and stuff not he doesn't control that he it's an analogy you know it's like he's like a king and you know one day in heaven you know when we escape our bodies and float around in a disembodied way you know he'll be like a king then for us too and that'll be great and of course none of that is how the bible talks about any of that right he means like he says in verse 35 he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And is setting the world back right. And is going to give us resurrected bodies. And we're going to live under his reign and rule. The way the world was meant to be. 
But it's not just a uh, vague, personal, spiritual hope. It's a description of reality for us. But the more we think of it as just kind of distant and airy and ephemeral, uh, the less it presses on us and shapes the way we look at the world. You know, so we, we think about our citizenship primarily as uh, the citizenship of our nations of origin rather than being a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And if anything, we'll say, well, it's kind of like we're citizens of both. But the Bible says, no, you've been transferred from kingdoms of the world into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's who you are now. That is where your citizenship is. That's where your home is now. You are now exiles and strangers in the world. You're resident aliens in the nations of the world until Jesus finishes his work and brings you home. And that's a pretty crazy way of thinking. It makes you really odd if you start taking that seriously. Because you think the real world is the Pentagon and the White House and Wall Street, and my faith in Jesus is just something that is privately meaningful to me, but basically irrelevant to the world. And uh, that's just not an option that's painted for us in the Bible about what it means for us to live uh, under King Jesus, who is the true King of the world. He says he has all authority on earth now. And means that. Um, so we tend to spiritualize if we forget this. The second thing we do is we tend to get co-opted by the empire when we forget that Jesus is the true king of the world. You know, we, we become too easy uh, prey for emperors and empires when this happens. Um, and we start to do things like seeing God as a mascot for our imperial power and our imperial pretensions, that God, uh, we want him to help us if we, I mean, we don't really need his help, but, you know, it sounds nice at least to say uh, that we want God to help us and be the promoter of our empire in the world, but God's not willing to be domesticated that way. He's not willing to become the mascot for our empires. But you start to see weird things happen when you do this, when, you get, when Christian faith gets co-opted into the civil religion, you start to see things like you know, artwork that has crosses and American flags all conflated with each other. You know, I know you've seen things like this. And uh, it's, it's obviously a violation of the third commandment that says you shouldn't use God's name in vain. Uh, but it doesn't seem odd to us when we, because we forget that Jesus is really the true king of the world. And then we'll hear politicians say these things. I'm going to give you two quotes. I'm not going to reference them. One says... In a, in a political speech, let's run the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. That's a verse from Hebrews that doesn't actually mention old glory. Um, another quote, when the Lord says, who shall I send? The American military has been answering for a long time. Here am I, Lord, send me. You know, I don't know. The lightning bolt thing, I, somebody just made up. But you just kind of want, <laughs> you want it up. You hear it, you think, oh no. Um, but it feels at times like we sold our birthright as Christians for a bowl of political porridge. Um, that we've become the useful idiots that Lee Atwater accused us of being back when I was young. Um, the evangelical church is easy to co opt, uh, and they're useful idiots. And so now when people say the word evangelical, 
If you, if, you, if you were just to tell your friends who aren't familiar with Christianity or church that you're an evangelical, what would they think you're telling them? They think you're naming yourself as a member of a political tribe. Like, all of our adjectives are gone. I don't know what to call myself anymore, but um, people think that the evangelical church is a uh, political, political action committee and that what we're interested in is political power and our means of gaining it are the same as everyone else's. And that's the reputation we've given to the world. That's what we've told the world about us. And it's not surprising that they think that way about us. But Jesus, Jesus isn't the sponsor of our country, and he isn't the sponsor of its empire. If anything, biblically speaking, you'd have to say he's the conqueror of our empire, not the sponsor of it. Which is the same thing he is in your life personally as a Christian. Like, he doesn't come to sponsor your agenda he comes for regime, regime change in your life, right? He takes you off the throne of your life and puts himself rightly on it. And he does that with our public life as well. Uh, he's the king, not in just some spiritual sense, but he's the real king of the world. And if we forget that he's the king of the world, really, we start using means to advance our agendas that are not Jesus' means. Because his means are very different, of bringing and spreading his kingdom, very different from the world's means. And the Bible says that we're not supposed to trust in horses. In other words, trust in our own might and ability, weapons, but also other strengths that we have to make things happen. And Jesus came and said, my kingdom doesn't work that way. When Peter cut off Malchus's ear, in the gospel reading we read today, Jesus said, put that away. <laughs> That's not how we do it. If I needed swords, I got swords. But that's not how we do this. Jesus' kingdom comes through his self-sacrificial love for his enemies and his laying down his life for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of how Jesus' kingdom comes to fix the world. It's his self-sacrificial death on our behalf. And when he sends us out into the world, he sends us out with the same tools so that we don't go out to kill for his kingdom we go out to die for his kingdom. Like he's the inverse of General Patton. You know, General Patton said, I don't want you boys to uh, die for your country. I want you to cause some other force to die for his country. <laughs> and you kind of got like General Patton. But Jesus said the opposite. Like, I don't want you boys. <laughs> he says, I don't want you to kill for me. I want you to die for me. That's the way my kingdom goes forward. For you to lay down your life in self-sacrificial love. For you not to assert your rights but to uh, lay them down for the sake of other people. Um, and it's bizarro weird to do that. Martin Luther King talked about that. You know, he was talking about what to do to redress the injustices of uh, uh, the end of Jim Crow era segregation in the U.S. And you know, he kept talking because he was a Christian minister. He kept talking about nonviolence and uh, that wanted to use Jesus' means to redress these injustices, not to use force and coercion, but to appeal, to lay down your life, to love your enemies, to pray for those who oppose you, all those things. And Malcolm X thought, you're a nut, right? I mean, Malcolm X thought, that's crazy. That's getting us nowhere. It can never work. That's not how the real world works. And he's right. The real world doesn't work that way. <laughs> Jesus' kingdom is so strange in the real world. But what Martin Luther King was doing was pursuing Jesus' kingdom through Jesus' means. 
And when we forget that Jesus is the true king, we become enamored of grasping for power and asserting our rights and forcing our way and trying to coerce other people to agree with us. And these are not the ways that Jesus' kingdom goes forward. You can think of a lot of times when the church has decided to take up the sword in the name of Jesus. But you can't think up a time when you're glad they did. Right? It's always been a disaster. It's always been a disaster. Jesus didn't give us the sword. He gave us the gospel, which we go and we share with people. And we persuade people. And we prepare to suffer if need be for the sake of that message, but not to inflict suffering in the name of that message. It's a weird kingdom, but Jesus is really the true king of the world. Our job is not to humble people. Our job is to humble ourselves and point people to the real king. So we said, uh, I don't know if you heard me say it, but I've said a few times in this series about being in exile that we live in Babylon. In, in every definable sense, what Babylon represents in the Bible is uh, powerful empires on earth. We have this unbelievably great economy. We have this great military. We have this political system. We have cultural heritage that we love and prize and should. But we're exiles here. We're citizens of a different kingdom. This isn't really our home. And it's okay to love it, it would be weird if you didn't, right? I mean, not many people have been dealt the kind of hand we've been dealt in terms of being scattered in the nations. Um, if you're not thankful for what you have living in this country, you're not paying very close attention, and you're not very thankful. And it's right, we're commanded even to seek for the welfare and shalom of the place we live. That's what the exiles were told even in Babylon, which was an awful place to live. But we're in a good place to live. We're told to seek the welfare and beauty of the place we live in. We should do that. But what we can't do is accept the pretensions of empire as Christians. Um, when we say in the creed, Jesus is Lord, we're making a pretty radical political statement. We're saying Jesus is the true king. And the pretensions of empire in this world uh, fall on deaf ears with us. We mind when people call us a city on a hill as a nation. We say, that's not your place. That's a usurpation. We mind when people say that we're the last great hope of the world or just we're the greatest nation ever. You know? um, we hear these things and we say, we're a nation that has much to be thankful for, uh, but Jesus Christ is the true king of the world and we're not getting sucked in to thinking something different. That's what we're called to do. So... Um, you listen to political speeches very long, you start to hear them sounding like, is this not America the Great that I have built for the glory of my own majesty? And uh, that's supposed to make us nervous, you know. Um, and that shouldn't be the way people think they could appeal to us and win us over. They should see us going, you know, wrinkling our brows when they say that kind of stuff. Okay, I started with a funeral, I'll end with a funeral too. Different funeral, more recent. Uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Antonin Scalia. His son's a minister and, and preached his funeral. And this is how he started the funeral sermon. He said, We're gathered here because of one man. A man known personally to many of us, known only by reputation to many more. A man loved by many, scorned by others. 
a man known for great controversy and for great compassion. And that man, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth. That's what I want to say. My funeral too, right? <laughs> God alone is great. God opposes the proud. And Jesus Christ is the true king of the world. Now let's pray.